Hello and welcome to the Soybean Pest Podcast. This is season 12, episode 8, August 20th, 2020. That sound is my email going off because we are lit, people. We're ready to go. And I've well, I think, yeah, the rest of us turned our email off, but okay. That voice is my longtime companion and colleague. Uh, Give a shout out. Hey, everyone. This is Erin. And we have a special guest today. We do. She's so special in many ways. This and we is... surprised Aster with no preparation, and she agreed. So she's a trooper. All right. Ashley Dean, tell the people who you are. I think I just um, well, I'm Ashley Dean, and I guess I work, I work alongside Erin as an extension entomologist for field crops. So I get random surprise uh, invites to their podcast every now. <laughs> we talk a lot about you on this podcast because you do a lot of cool, amazing stuff. Um, you do a bunch of surveys and you prepare a lot of material. You're a co-author, I believe, on some of the awesome stuff that Aaron's putting out through the Journal of IPM, to which she has laid claim to. She's now the JIPM queen. So... Just give the people a little bit of uh, what you've been doing this summer. Oh, gosh, um, a little bit of everything, I think. Um, like you said, I uh, help with coordinating different trapping networks in Iowa. So uh, we did the moth trapping network early this spring. And then we do some research stuff uh, with. Greg, who is her uh, lab tech. So I help with all that stuff. Uh, so we did some bean leaf beetle. We did some uh, soybean defoliation work. We did soybean aphid. And most of what we've been working on lately is soybean balmage survey. So um, we've just been kind of going around different counties in Iowa and um looking for soybean gallmage in those fields so just random stops so that's been pretty fun and that's kind of what's been taking up a lot of our time lately so this is usually the time on the podcast where i say hey Aaron, what's going on in the field what have you heard so maybe i should just ask you hey ashley what's going on in the field what have you seen uh well i guess we can start with uh soybean aphid there uh hasn't been that much this year, I don't think. I haven't heard from very many people that they're seeing soybean aphid at, soybean aphid at all, uh, let alone at any high levels. Um, it's a drought year, so I guess uh, people have been seeing spider mites a bit more and uh, maybe more than they normally do. Um, also a drought year insect, I've seen a lot of grasshoppers in corn and soybean, so um, just a lot of grasshoppers hopping around. Um, soybean gallmage is one that we've been, just because we've been in the, those Western counties, right? So we've been seeing soybean gallmage. Um, what's interesting though, is when you walk into a field, you don't really immediately recognize injury or anything. So, um, but you can find them when you split those stems open. Um, well, Ashley, can I interrupt? Um, are, yeah. are you finding any, are you seeing any uh, sudden death syndrome in soybean as you're scouting around? Yeah, I guess um, just based on my sort of limited knowledge of sudden death syndrome, like what the foliar 
symptoms would look like. I feel, yeah, I feel like I've seen quite a few fields with some foliar symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, I wonder if people are looking and seeing those kind of rapid declines and um, not knowing if it's midges or uh, pathogens. Um, they kind of look the same from the road, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think mm-hmm. it can be easily confused. Yeah, and you guys found three new counties this week, right? Confirmations of soybean gallmage larvae. Yep. Was it Emmett, Taylor, and Adams? Yes. Okay, so that's a little bit more central in the state. So that's interesting that they're sort of making a slow move to the central part of Iowa. Yeah, yep. We'll be doing some more surveying over the next couple of weeks. So I suspect that we'll get a lot more new counties this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. That's great. Good luck with that. I think I also heard on the uh, phone call today the um, the occurrence of gall midge adults is something uh, you all are tracking. And uh, can you comment a little bit about that? Because as you mentioned, you know, you got to look for the larvae in the stem, but the adults are more active, right? They're flying around a little bit. Is that something that you could notice or... Do you have to have special emergence cages in order to, you know, capture the adults and see them in, in your field? Yeah, you're unlikely to see them walking in the field or even if you're using a sweep net. I'm not sure you would capture them that way. Um, we've tried sticky cards without a lot of success. Um, really, the best way is to use like a rootworm trap. And it's a, it's a trap that's put right over the soil or right on top of the soil. And it captures adults as they uh, come out of the ground. And we haven't had very good luck with their placement. I don't know if it's just unlucky or really low populations. Um, Very few adults have been captured this year uh, with our locations. It's really different across the state line into Nebraska where they're finding hundreds, sometimes hundreds per cage. So they've collected a couple thousand adults this year. No problem. And so it's, I mean, they've had a lot more pressure from larvae too. So they just have, I think, more midges than we do. But yeah, we haven't been too lucky with adult emergence captures this year. Well, is it luck or is it something special about Nebraska or the locations where they're sampling that they're seeing more adults? I thought I heard somebody in the call say today that, well, maybe it's um, the drought that is keeping the, uh, maybe the adults from emerging, maybe they're not you know, surviving as well from pupa to adult stage, but I thought Nebraska was experiencing the same drought as we are. Maybe not, maybe their central pivot irrigation is you know, uh, alleviating the effect of drought on gall midges. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that where they sample, they're on pivots, they're, um, but I, I don't know, I'd have to look at the drought monitor to see if they were, D2, D3, like we are at our locations, they may not be experiencing as severe as drought on the eastern side. But I, I, I'd have to ask Justin, but I don't think where they have traps, um, they're not on pivots. But yeah, I, I just don't think we know enough to understand their success um, to adult or how a drought or different soil types may impact their survivorship. Um, that's, uh, both exciting and also, uh, disconcerting, right? I mean, there's a lot to learn about this pest. Um, 
new to science, new to the world, but um, troublesome given the damage that it can do, right? So a lot of nodding, which is yeah. great in an audio medium like a podcast. Thanks, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, any other updates, any other things you're seeing in the field that we should share with our listener? Um, I don't know. Ashley, do you want to talk about those very special rootworms that you saw this week? Special, special. special. Yeah. Maybe Matt knows. Yeah. Well, I feel like he's a little bit more knowledgeable on rootworm than us, maybe. But um, he may not be. It's your master's degree, wasn't it, Matt? Uh, master's, and, master's and PhD, but you know, I don't like to talk to myself about myself. Okay. I'm two time state champion in quiz ball. I don't like to go back in the past. You know, let's just keep moving forward. What have you seen, Ashley? So I guess it's worth mentioning that, you know, I talked a lot about what we've been seeing for soybean insects, but the main thing that we've been seeing for corn is corn rootworm. And there's just a lot of them this year. And so people are noticing them. Um, just from the sheer amount of adults. So we were out in some fields this week and I found some Western corn rootworms that are red or orange in color. Oh, you can't see this very well, but um, anyway. They're, they're podcast, kind of, podcast, not a, not a visual medium. <laughs> yeah, well, I was showing you, Matt, not, okay. not our audience, but um, anyway, so they're, they're reddish orange and I guess I don't know what causes that or if anyone has any speculation or if it's just something environmental I don't know it was kind of cool though because I I thought it was a bean leaf beetle when I saw it but it was in corn so I looked at it and it is a western corn rootworm. oh cool uh it was, maybe, it was striking yeah. yeah could we take a picture and show uh our audience our listener maybe they would know that's really cool I, I don't know if I've I don't know if I've ever seen that before. One thing I, I, uh, I have noticed, and, and thank to, thanks to Joe Spencer for pointing this out, you can kind of see some of what the rootworm is feeding on in the adult stage, because the abdomen picks up some of the color of the the you know the food. Um, so rootworms that have fed on uh, re, you know, green foliage will have a greener tint to their abdomen um, on the underneath side, it would be the ventral side. Um, than those that have been feeding on corn pollen and, you know, kind of yellower material, but red, is this, this is throughout the insect or is it just in the abdomen that you see in this color? The elytra. Yeah. Oh. It's the, the whole insect. It looked, I mean, it looked like a bean leaf beetle color, kind of that like orangey brown color that, you know, some of the adults can have, but you know, it's definitely not a bean leaf beetle, but just okay. like first glance, you're like, Whoa, cool. Yeah. Yeah, take some pictures. That's interesting. Um, maybe we're geeking out in something that the rest <laughs> of the world doesn't care about. But... Yes, yes, I think so. <laughs> but, yeah, this is uh, what we do. we talk about sometimes around the water cooler. Um, That's what if... like fresh eyeballs can do. Like young eyeballs that Ashley has, she can she can like see these in the field when there's like you're being peppered with adults. She's like, look at this. <laughs> you're not actually being peppered in the face, are you? It's not like, yes. oh, really? it, was it was that bad. bad. It was bad. Really? Like you open up a husk and like, they're just like coming out left and right because oh, they're so trying this to is, get okay. what's right. left of the green, green silks. Yeah. They're hungry and they're there to party. <laughs> and by party, we mean eat your corn. So you got yeah. That. And a little bit more. Um, anything else? Cause we got something real big to talk about. Okay. 
Yeah, let's let's move on to that. Oh my gosh, our big agenda item. Uh, we've been talking for almost what 15, 20 minutes, and the elephant in the room. Is that the right metaphor? Anyway, is the uh, recent announcement by the EPA that they're zeroing out the tolerances on food of chlorpyrifos, which is a wonky, geeky way of saying the EPA is banning the use of chlorpyrifos, i.e. Lohr's ban and other generics that use this organophosphate. Um, Yeah, this is kind of, I think, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it's kind of a big deal. And you guys are, again, nodding in this visual media. <laughs> uh, to the elicitor, they are shaking their heads, yes. Um, you know, I don't work as directly with farmers as you all. Uh, what do you think the impact of this will be? You think it's a big deal or is this, um, un, you know, not surprising? Uh, well, I, it's, it's, it's big news in the agriculture world because especially in field crops, we don't have a lot of products to choose from. So to remove uh, a product like Corpyrofos is going to change how people manage their pest problems. Um, Usually alternatives would be more expensive, especially if you can get something generic. And I was a little bit confused when that, when that came out. And so I followed up with some pesticide safety experts. I asked our group here at Iowa state, like what, what's considered a food and would corn and soybean be included in that? And she sent me a nice response. So thanks, Betsy Danielson. I'm not sure she is one of our couple listeners, but if you are, thanks. She said, um, you know, zero tolerances on specific food and feed commodities. And so um, that would include field corn, uh, any type of grain, refined oil, stover, alfalfa for hay and forage, and soybean. So it includes like most of the field crops, I would think, you know, are grown in Iowa and probably the Corn Belt. Yeah, so uh, as I understand this tolerance. Sorry, Matt, we can't hear you. Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, Oh, we can hear you now. now? Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding is the registration process for an insecticide involves a couple of factors that the EPA rule on. And one of them is this thing called a tolerance, which is how much of the, ins- the product can be on the, uh, the crop the, that, that is eventually sold to a consumer. And um, tolerances are uh, set based on you know, how safe that product can be if it's accidentally ingested by a, a human. And so uh, to say zero is to say this is not safe anymore as deemed by the EPA and so it can't be used. Um, And going forward, uh, there's a bunch of questions, right? About, well, when does this occur? Because a lot of product has been sold already, right? I'm assuming, you know, there are farmers who, uh, or applicators even that have purchased chlorpyrifos and have it in a storage unit somewhere. Um, can they still use that? It was purchased legally. Um, I don't know. What, what have you heard on that topic? And I, I haven't heard anything on, um, I assume it's going to be a phased thing. I don't, do you think it's going to be immediate or um, I, I don't know. I assume yeah. it'll be phased out. Um, because, yeah, I don't know how much storage a farmer would have, maybe 
product enough for a year or so, but I don't think they're, they would consider it like long-term storage, Maybe like five bring, years worth. Yeah, maybe we could bring Ashley in here because Ashley, was it a year or so ago, you wrote an article about this topic um, specific to chlorpyrifos and uh, one of the companies, one of the big companies that manufactured it who stopped manufacturing it. Can you give us a little recap of that article and tell us what you learned then? Yeah, so uh, I think it was a year ago that Corteva announced that they would stop producing their chlorpyrifos products, and they cited that it was because of declining sales. It just wasn't profitable for them to be uh, producing those products anymore. So basically, I, when that happened, farmers were a little freaked out about that as well, but um Essentially, if they had already purchased those products and had them on hand, they could continue to use them until they ran out because um, it was like a voluntary, uh, uh, now I'm losing my words, but it was voluntary that the company like pulled that label, right? So um, I think it'll be different with this thing that's effectively a ban that um, I think it'll be different that maybe It'll be sort of phased out, like Aaron said, but there will be a time when you absolutely can't use it, even if you have a, a stock of them. And I think what normally happens based on my reading a year ago, so um, I probably need to brush up on this, but I think what usually happens is the company or someone will buy those back or take them back or something so that uh, they can dispose of them. So, uh, but we would probably have to have an expert verify that because I, it's been a while since I looked that up, but yeah, this will be a much bigger deal for farmers, especially that we deal with. Yep. Um, yeah, it was suggested that we get in contact with Christine Tigrin. She's a, a lawyer and works at the Center for Ag and Law, something, something at Iowa State, just to make sure that we maybe have a better understanding of some of the legal implications of having product now and like, you know, what's going to happen in 2022 and beyond as far as detectable tolerances. I, I, I'm just not sure. That's a great idea. Uh, I might send an email to her. Um, I've talked with her before. She's uh, an excellent resource for the university on legal issues and agriculture. Uh, talked with her in the past about uh, legal hemp production in Iowa. And um, yeah, uh, maybe a future podcast could be a, a little interview. Of, uh, yeah, I, I think she does a nice job of, of talking to people who aren't lawyers and breaking down some of the legal language that's included with some of those uh, documents from the courts. So uh, we're going to put a link to the article that Ashley wrote back in 2020 about the chloropyrifos uh, uh, production by Corteva and then uh, finishing off the, um, the production of that by that company. Um, but, it was like two, two weeks before the pandemic. I just, it was in February. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess uh, we should say that, you know, we're not legal experts uh, on this topic, but we just wanted to bring attention to uh, this, uh, to our listener and, um, you know, kind of start thinking about what the repercussions are for this uh, ruling. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Aaron, that for farmers, especially corn and soybean farmers, and really, especially for soybean farmers, 
there's a limited number of active ingredients, different chemistries that are available to them. And this is uh, challenging, especially for soybean aphid management, where that pest has become resistant to pyrethroids. Now, that resistance isn't universal. It's not everywhere. And we're, we're seeing that um, we can still use pyrethroids in Iowa and get pretty good protection. I don't think most farmers would know if, uh, uh, notice uh, resistance yet. But one of the recommendations for managing resistance is to alternate active ingredients to something different than the commonly used one, especially one that the insect has become resistant to. Chlorpyrifos was such an active ingredient. It was, it's very different from pyrethroids uh, as an organophosphate. And there, are there any other organophosphates that are labeled for soybeans? You're shaking yeah. your head yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was trying to think of some common or product names, but there would be alternatives to, uh, I forget if it's a one, is it a one C, Ashley? I forget what it is, but there's like one A and one C. So there would be a couple of options within that group one for, uh, for the organ organophosphates. There'd be some options. I just can't think of product names off the top of my yeah. head, but there would be some options, but you're right. It's not just soybean aphid. Um, a lot of the pests that we have in Iowa on corn and soybean, people's first option is a pyrethroid because it's effective and it's cheap and they, some farmers feel like it has a long residual. That's another discussion. But if you take away that um, chlorpyrifos option, it's going to put even more pressure on more pyrethroids are going to be sprayed because they're not going to not spray, right, if they feel like it's justified or not. So if they're planning to spray, it puts a lot of pressure on pyrethroids to, to perform. And so I think farmers are going to have to get more savvy with some alternative group numbers. And um, those are going to be more expensive. So, can, I, can I just jump in? And for yeah. our listener who may not be familiar with the, the term group numbers, this is on the label. These are group numbers assigned by the Insecticide uh, Resistance Action Committee, IRAC, and it's a way of grouping insecticides by different modes of action so that farmers can select insecticides to rotate so that insects don't become, one, they, they don't uh, use the same mode of action repeatedly, which is a way to hasten the evolution of resistance. And yeah. I, I think you've, uh, you've done a great job with preparing materials on this. And I think you have it in your yellow book, your insecticide evaluation, the different um, modes of action you, that were used in that insecticide trial. And I, if I remember correctly, it, although there are different brand names, there's a lot of different brand names and there's uh, you know fewer number of different chemistries there's actually very few modes of action, very few of these group numbers that are available to soybean farmers. I think it's only like three or four unique modes of, oh, not even that many. Is that right? No, there's more. There is more than four, but, but it's uh, kind of shockingly few given the long list of product names that are available to farmers. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a handful of products that you can use in soybean and corn. It's just going to be more expensive. So if they have the option of $25 an acre versus $3 an acre, I mean, guess what they're going to pick? And the products that are really effective um, on some of those key pests are in, in it, they're looking, I'm, I'm thinking of like corn rootworm. Um, some of the products that they're using called Steward by FMC, 
excellent efficacy, but it's not in stock. So if they can't keep up with the demand, then they will you know, fall back on a pyrethroid. And I misspoke earlier. So um, or organophosphates, there's two main groups and one B would be the organophosphates and one A is the carbamates. So they would have some carbamates available um, that are legally like labeled in corn and soybean. So I'll put the, uh, the link to the IRAC uh, modes of action. And uh, if a listener wants to, they can go and find those in more detail. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there are options, but as far as like what's in stock for a farmer to purchase, that part I, I'm not as savvy about. So I, I don't know like what options they could actually buy if they wanted to alternate yeah. away from pyrethroids or organophosphates. It'll be interesting to see if this ruling has some downwind changes to uh, ag practices around here, if there would be an uptick in scouting, because if insecticides cost more, are farmers going to be less likely to spray preventatively, prophylactically um, when, you know, it costs more, you know, and, and there's, le- you know, if there's, uh, if there's a chance that they don't need it because they scouted and they saw that, you know, they're having a year like the this year for soybean aphids, where I mean, we, we can't, there are fields where we can't find an aphid, which is, you know, shocking given, you know, what we've seen in the past. Um, maybe there'll be less of the tank mixing and preventative use. However, uh, spider mites, uh, that's a more common pest this year than in years past with the drought. So um, anyway, it'll be interesting to see if, if how farmers respond to this. Uh, this change because I, I when I saw that in the newspaper I thought wow that's that's gonna be kind of big news around here you know maybe not for fruit and vegetable farmers that have a wider range of uh, insecticides but and uh, not the case for corn and soybeans you guys are shaking your head yes yeah on that. um well give us a minute to process that oh. <laughs> um, yeah so I mean it's definitely a game changer because it was a readily accessible product and so if that's taken off the table, you're right, farmers are going to have to, you know, pros and cons, is it worth spraying a product that costs four or five times more? Maybe it's worth a scout. I don't know. I mean, that would four be- or five times more. Wow. That is, that's, that's a big change. That's remarkable. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, some of the work that Ashley has done with some of the profitability. So, um, you know, uh, weighing the inputs, estimating the returns, um, you know, that's something that I think her expertise is going to be even more valuable. I hate to speak for her, but yeah, you know, she has some nice budgets worked up for soybean and soybean aphid, but um, it'd be worth maybe doing something in corn as well, looking at a, a budget sheet. You know, is a spray worth it? Ashley, do you have um, those budget sheets available for the general public to play around with? We don't have them as like a link somewhere. Yeah, we've talked about it many times, just putting the spreadsheet online somewhere, but currently it is not. Um, I I would be happy to send it to anybody who wants it. So not to tell you what to do, but maybe, um, maybe we can make that available because um, you put a lot of work into those Excel spreadsheets that were part of your uh, master's thesis and the uh, one of the two publications that came out of that, uh, those are uh, beautiful tools. And I, um, you know, 
as they say in church, uh, this little light of yours, you got to let it shine. You know, if you can put that in a, a, a format that people could get it, I think there'd be a lot of interest, especially right now, given the big changes that are going to come with the uh, the lack of availability of a cheap insecticide and what the consequences are gonna be for more expensive insecticides. Yeah, for sure. We should talk about how we can make that available to people. I know you're super busy you know, with the field season, um, but uh, maybe we can do a teaser, say stay tuned for that in the fall uh, in some mm. format that'll be available. I'll put a link to the article uh, that we're talking about, which that was the one in Journal of Economic Entomology. Um, no, that one, this one would be in pest management science. Okay. I'll put a link to it. I think it's open access. Um, yep. We paid for that. So people, if you really want to dig in deep to this, uh, Ashley described it in great detail for soybeans and um, yeah, take a look at that. Anything else we want to talk about here? I think we covered a lot. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, any gigs, upcoming events that you want to plug? Any, Ashley, are you going to be out there uh, anywhere that the people can hear you talk or sharing some of your stuff? You know, I don't know if I have any upcoming uh, talks. Uh, I will be at ESA as part of the there's a trapping symposium, and I got invited to that. So if you want to hear more about the Iowa trapping networks, uh, you could catch me there. But um, as far as like the soybean aphid stuff goes, I don't have anything planned for that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you for joining. Kind of last minute, but it was uh, great to have your input on this. You are a big part of the team, and we, we appreciate you as a resource. So for inviting me. This was really Thanks, <laughs> Well, this won't be the last time. All right. We'll call it. Aaron, you good? I'm so good. Yeah, you are. All right. See you next time. See ya. Bye.